0: Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode number four of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Today, my special guest is Dr. Haley Thompson from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Our topic today is very interesting. Is there racism in the U.S. healthcare system? I remember being the program evaluator for the Lucas County Commission on Minority Health, whose mission back then was to reduce racial and ethnic health disparities. Mr. Dennis Hicks, a black American man, was the director. And I'll always remember what he said about discussions on race. He said this, you can't really have a productive discussion about racism with black and white Americans in the same room. Once you bring up the subject, one group gets defensive and one group gets offended. <laughs> I guess he was right. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. But anyone who has worked in the U.S. healthcare system, like me, knows that there's a problem with racism. It's time we admit it and fix it. I probably have at least seven research studies on my computer hard drive that show that men of the same age, with the exact same diagnosis, with the exact same family history, with the exact same socioeconomic background received different quality of medical care. What's the difference? No, it wasn't the hospital, you were wrong. The hospital was the same for both men. The difference was how much melanin the men had in their bodies. Melanin is the pigment of skin. The white men got better medical care. The men of color got worse medical care. Hmm. Today, I want to move upstream and think about the causes of the causes. The social determinants of health. Let's start at medical school and academia and look backwards, shall we? So here's a very interesting question for you. I want you to think about the answer. What percent of faculty members at U.S. medical schools are physicians of color, do you think? Is it 10 percent? 15 percent? 20 percent? Higher? Higher? Well, if you selected any of those answers, you were incorrect. The correct answer, according to a published research article in 2021 from the New England Journal of Medicine, was that only 5.5% of faculty in U.S. medical schools identified themselves as Hispanic, Latinx, or Spanish. Even lower, at 3.6%, faculty members identified themselves as black or African-American. And even worse, at 0.2% of faculty were self-identified as Native American or Alaskan. Why so low? Why so few faculty members of color in U.S. medical schools? Well, it, it must be because there are so few people of color in the U.S. population, correct? That has to be it. Well, it isn't. That can't be the reason. Because the 2020 census of the United States pointed out that Hispanics make up about 19% of the U.S. population. Blacks make up 14% of the American population. Hmm, that can't be it. Well, I'm sure there, there must have been a dramatic improvement in these numbers over time. I mean, if we look like 30 years back, I'm sure. There's certainly been an emphasis to get people of color and faculty ranks in medical school correct. Well, no. A 2021 article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association said that in the last 30 years, there was only an increase of 1.6% of medical school faculty that self-identified as black or African-American. What? Huh? 1.6% in 30 years? Really? It turns out that the smallest percentage point change occurred at the associate and full professor ranks. And the rank of assistant professor was only slightly higher. In summary... I think we all would admit from these statistics that we have a major problem in U.S. medical schools lacking faculty members of color. And by the way, it's it's not much better in clinical practice. According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, colleges the AAMC, they wrote a report in 2019 that said only 5.8% of active practicing physicians identified as Hispanic, and only 5% identified as black or African American. We have a problem. So let's move backwards, shall we? Let's look back at medical school admissions. They have to be better, I'm sure. In 2021, according to these articles and statistics that I found, 2021, black or African American students made up 11% of first-year students, medical students. Hispanics made up 12% of first-year medical students. And to their credit, U.S. medical schools seem to be recognizing that this is a a problem. This racial-ethnic disparity issue is, is a real problem. They're trying to do something about it. There have been improvements at the American medical school ranks. However, listen to this. American Indian or Alaskan native first-year medical students declined by 8.5% since 2020. Now, you may say it may be due to the pandemic. It may be due to the pandemic. We don't know. But now those students only make up 1% of all first-year medical students. That's it, 1%. Let's keep moving backwards, shall we? So before you can go to medical school, you must do what? Well, you must go to college. Or university, and then graduate. So let's look at college graduates. After six years, six years of studying, what percent of blacks and Hispanics, Latinos who started at a public or private four year institution have graduated after six years? What do you think? 60%? 75%, maybe? Well, if you said those figures, you're wrong. About half, 52% to be exact, for both Hispanics and Blacks graduate after six years. Half? After six years? Think of all the money they've spent. What about whites? White students, it's up to 70%. Why the huge disparity in six-year graduation rates by race? Did you also know that the loan default rates for college... Are almost six times higher among black graduates and two and a half times higher among Latino graduates than they are among whites. About one third of black graduates from four year public or private institutions defaulted on their student loans, while nearly 14% of Latino graduates did so. Why, why do we see these wide gaps by race and ethnicity? Any ideas? Now, stay with me. Let's move back to high school. Certainly, we don't see these kind of disparities in high school graduation rates, right? Well, according to the National Center for Educational Statistics, black American kids and American Indian, Alaska Natives have the lowest high school graduation rates of any race. On the other end, we have Asian And Pacific Islander kids who have the highest high school graduation rates, they're at about 93% of them graduate. Why do you think we have these tremendous racial and ethnic disparities at high school graduation? And as the last step before our interview today with Dr. Haley Thompson, I want to talk about kids who might be ages, let's say, kindergarten through third grade, five to eight years of age. Way before they enter the healthcare system. Maybe, just maybe, we should be intervening in the lives of these kids. So, we're told by experts that one's third grade reading level is highly predictive of high school graduation and college enrollment. And experts tell us that in grades K through three, students learn how to read. And by grade four, Students read to learn. Notice the play on words. So how many black kids do you think scored proficient or above proficient in reading at grade four? You want to take a guess? Go ahead. I'll wait. The answer is only 18%. 18%? And to prove my point as eighth graders, Only 15% of black kids score at proficient or above in reading. So if they haven't learned it by grade four, it's probably too late. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a heart at all, if you care at all, then these cold, hard statistics should make you angry. They should make you angry. These statistics should upset you. And maybe the best thing that we can do to improve racism in healthcare is to help black and brown kids read better at kindergarten through third grade. Maybe all of us should be lining up as reading tutors at urban elementary schools. Interesting thought. Now that I've set the table for you, let's talk about our special guest today, Dr. Haley Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a tenured professor in the Department of Oncology and at Wayne State Medical School of Medicine, Detroit, Michigan. She did her baccalaureate work in New York at Colgate University and earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in Psychology and African American Studies. Then she went on and earned a Master of Science degree and a doctoral degree in Clinical Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She then went on for her postgraduate training in clinical and community psychology at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. And then she did a postdoc, a postdoctoral research fellowship at Mount Sinai in the Department of Oncological Sciences in their program of prevention, cancer prevention and control. Suffice it to say, she's very talented, very passionate, very committed. And you're really, really going to like her. Here she is, Dr. Haley Thompson. Well, hello. Hello.
1: This is Dr. Tim
0: Jordan. I'm your host. This is episode four of Grassroots Health. And we have a really good guest for you today. Her name is Dr. Haley Thompson. She's from Wayne State University up in Detroit. How are you, Haley? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing All right. We're here uh, recording this today, and we want to make it available the first Monday of December, and so you can look okay. for it uh, wherever you get your podcasts on the first Monday of December. So Haley, let me let's just get right to it. Let me let me just ask you the main question. Okay, do you think there's racism in, in the U.S. healthcare system? <laughs>
1: uh, yes, I do think there's racism in the U.S. healthcare system. Um, there's racism in most of the institutions and uh, in our country, and healthcare is one of those. So, um, yes, uh, and I think it's important to think about, and I know we'll get into this defining maybe a little bit what racism is, because I think there's a really huge difference between the way that academics or even people in policy think about racism and define that or operationalize that versus the way... The average person, the lay person in our communities, thinks about racism. You know, so they think tend to think about it as something that you know on an interpersonal level, right? It's something that one person does to another, or it's reflected in what one person says to another, right? When in fact, it's systemic, right? It's structural. So I think I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that. But to the extent that it is present in many institutions, in our schools, in law enforcement, um, yes, it's in healthcare as well.
0: So your opinion is yes, um, and you talked about a definition. I think it's important up front to define it mm-hmm. um, because there's racism. And then a newer term that has come recently is placism. Mm. Like where we live determines mm-hmm. a lot of our opportunity, uh, quality of our schools, quality of our neighborhoods, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So let's first define racism. What's, what's your definition of Racism
1: so i tend to use and actually i have it up here um use a definition when i do these presentations by um camara jones you know and actually you know it's it's um i got my phd i'm a clinical psychologist by training and i got my phd in 1999 many years ago but um you know around the 2000 um camara jones uh published, I think, a really groundbreaking article that people still cite to this day that really talked about and really outlined institutionalized racism. And that is the definition that I work with and when I present in academic settings or in community settings, I talk about this. I have it right here in front of me. This the differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. Institutionalized racism is normative Right, it's it's part of it's just part of our world. It's part of daily life. Sometimes it's legalized, and it often manifests as inherited inherited disadvantage. Right, so it can be passed. It, it can have its effects through generations, and the impact of racism on again those opportunities on that access to resources can um, have negative impacts across generations. I think that's such an important. Part of that definition, and I'm sure we'll be coming talking about that more today as we talk about you know what's happening in our healthcare systems, in our schools, and our in our, our healthcare professional pipelines. Lastly, it's structural, having been codified in our institutions of custom, practice, and law, so there need not be an identifiable perpetrator. Right. And so that's what it gets to what I'm saying. It doesn't it's not about necessarily about, um, you know, the bad actors right, that we know are mm-hmm. throughout our society. Right. It's, it's bigger than that. Right. It's about what are the systems and to some extent, what are the systems that allow those people to kind of continue to be bad actors? But it also is about what are the systems that even allow people who maybe are of goodwill or people who, you know, um, um, want to behave equitably want to believe in want to behave in anti-racist ways what are the systems that implicate them right and have them um, um, have their, their their actions and the outcomes of those actions be racist anyway so I know that's a lot but hopefully we can unpack it
0: Yeah that's very good um, I want to talk to you a minute about Jackson Mississippi um, Jackson Mississippi is the capital of the state of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. There have been 150,000 or so citizens of Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. that haven't had clean water. Mm. This in the United States. In the United States, and I've been teaching about this in some of my public health classes. That you know, from a public health perspective, this should make us angry, no matter what our yeah. race is. If we're white, mm-hmm. yellow, brown, black, purple, doesn't matter. It should make us angry that in the United States today. There's 150,000 people that can't even flush their toilets. Right. They don't have drinking water. So what really made me think about Jackson, Mississippi, in our talk today was a dissertation that I'm chairing now about redlining.
1: Yes. And
0: if you know the historic redlining, mm-hmm. what happened was these committees that were formed by the federal government decided certain neighborhoods weren't worthy of investment. And so yeah. over and over and year after year after year, these poor neighborhoods didn't get infrastructure changes in pipes. And then global warming happens. And there's more flooding on top of the pipes and the pipes break. Yeah. So what do you think we can do about those kind of things? Do we need to go down to Jackson, Mississippi, you and I, and organize mm-hmm. the people? Or, mm-hmm. or what should we do?
1: Well, I mean... Uh... So, so there's a lot there. I mean, because, yes, the people of Jackson, Mississippi, you know, are, um, don't have access to clean drinking water. Obviously, we have uh, an example of that closer to home, right, yeah, <laughs> right here in Flint, Michigan. You know, um, well, first of all, I believe that, you know, um, when there are problems in a community— I believe those solutions are in that community as well. Yep. <laughs> so I think it's about you know um, the people of Jackson will let us know <laughs> whether they, ha, how and um, how and when they need us. Right? <laughs> so you know we can. Um, so I, I, again, I want to oh, I I, I want to say that because I really, especially as I kind of kind of progress in my career, really want to push back on kind of um, uh, this idea that we as academics, we as with the PhDs and the MDs, are the only experts. There is uh, expertise and genius and brilliance and through in all, many sectors of our society, right? So, um, and I'm happy to follow the lead of the people of Jackson, Mississippi. I don't need to go down there and organize, you know, I'll, I'll let them organize me when they're ready. Um, but, you know, I, you know it's, it's, it's interesting. You talked about this idea of placism, right? Mm-hmm. And I kind of, and I understand that. I think, you know, place is incredibly important to health. But where we live, place, isn't random, right? I, my, I, I, t- I tend to um, believe, and that's based on, you know, um, research and my own kind of um, observations and reading that, you know, this institutionalized racism, this structural racism drives many other upstream factors that affect health, right? Because where people live is dictated you know, and we can see through time and history and through legislation, policy, like you talked about redlining, where people live, it has to do with their race, right? Mm-hmm. People don't end up in certain neighborhoods by accident, right? They actually in many cases it's quite deliberate, <laughs> it's quite intentional. You know, there are forces that um, that have moved them into certain areas versus others, right? So, um, yeah, you know, I think that's something important. I I, I think that racism. You know, even if, we, and and that's not to say that that we shouldn't focus on place and the impact of place and health and and do a deep dive in terms of our understanding about those pathways that affect you know place of residence and 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 um, to to health outcomes, but I think that you know for me, racism was either very uh, racism needs to be a part of all those conversations, right? And how is that again driving the other factors that drive our health? Mm-hmm. So I'm I don't know if I've answered your question, but.
0: Yeah, uh, like I said,
1: I, I, I tend to start with kind of these big picture kinds of understandings to kind of then sort of drill exactly. down into the more specific.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about kids because I mm-hmm. think I think the the racist nature of our education system contributes to what we see in medicine. And we don't see very many physicians of color, as an example. We don't see faculty members of color. And I think it starts all the way down in elementary school. Let me give you an example. My mother, who's 84, was recently tutoring at one of our urban schools here, mm-hmm. mostly black American youth. And she could tell you which youth were successful in reading at mm-hmm. kindergarten level and which weren't. And she would like have these note cards, you know, little mm-hmm. words on cat, the dog, you know, little yeah. little sight words and like Anthony would come in and he would he would get through them in 30 seconds and be bored and he'd say, Okay, when can I read you a story? And then an, another kid would come in, mm-hmm. same grade, same class, and he couldn't read one of them. Mm-hmm. And what she found out is asking the differences between kids is a lot Anthony would say, Well, you know, my mom reads to me every night. Or my mom and the other kid would say my mom isn't around or she's in prison. I'm living with mm-hmm. my grandma. And so we do do have that placism issue mm-hmm. again. But she also said that they're mostly white teachers that are teaching black students. And most of the teachers were gritting their teeth and angry and yelling and telling the kids to line up single file. So I want I want you to think about going back to grades, maybe third grade, fourth mm-hmm. grade, fifth grade. And we see... Massive differences in third grade reading level. We know from the experts, mm-hmm. and this is my field, mm. my previous field, I was assistant principal. But uh. third grade reading level was highly predictive of who graduated from high school mm-hmm. and who got in college, who enrolled yeah. in college. And we see at third grade these discrepancies or these disparities by race yeah. between whites and black kids. Why do, we, why do you think we see those disparities in third grade reading levels at that age,
1: I mean, I think that is a uh, that's a good question. So I always want to be transparent. You know, this is you know, education is not necessarily my it's yeah. not my field, and I know that there are you know folks like you and other experts who have kind of actually probably done more empirical studies to kind of really look at a range of factors that um, that uh, influence those reading levels. I mean, you know, but one thing I can, uh, maybe I'll share with you like a personal story just about my own growing up. So, yeah. you know, I, um, I'm i the child of immigrants and a Caribbean immigrants. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and my uh, parents sent me, they were able, you know, we were kind of working class and my parents were able to send me, I went to Lutheran school actually from like grades two through eight before I started going to public high school. But it was a very small school. Um, one grade Per uh, one class per grade, and so I went to school like you know, same kids from a lot of my young life. You know, we went through this Lutheran school together, and you know, I, even now I talk about I, I'm still Facebook friends with some of those folks I knew back. Like I'm in my 50s, so this is you know, 40 years ago people people mm-hmm, yeah. I knew when we were young. You know, that's a special thing like when you <laughs> you're keeping in touch with people when you know the folks you knew when you were a child. But we talk about some of what we observed because we were I grew up in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. Lutheran school, again, almost all the teachers were white, white women, and almost Mm. all the children were black. (laughs) And we talked about the different ways that that kind of played out. And again, when it's happening to you, right? And we didn't have the language necessarily to talk about it at the time. And our parents are working and, you know, living their lives and just trying to make sure their kids get the best education. That's why we were in this private Lutheran school versus the public schools. But, um, you know, and perhaps they didn't even have the language. They didn't know everything that was going on and they didn't have the language to articulate it. But, you know... um, uh, there was really a sense when we look back of just um, that kind of idea that our teachers, you know, how often they would be frustrated with us, like our behavior, mm-hmm. you know. And um, certainly we didn't learn anything about our own culture. You know, it wasn't until eighth grade I had one, they finally hired one black man as a teacher where we had anything about black history mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, you know, Not I had. Until
0: eighth grade? No,
1: yeah. Mm. Yes. Again, this is back in the 70s, early 80s, but still. Um, uh, we had this one teacher we, who uh, we would always in the morning sing, we'd have to do the Pledge of Allegiance, and we'd have to, um, it was a, pri- a pri- you know private parochial school, so we sang some hymns, but she was really into patriotic songs, and we had this songbook. But... Some of the songs she had us singing were basically like from the old South: "Jimmy Crack Corn," "I Don't Care," or you know, the old mm-hmm. folks at home, all the Stephen Foster songs. Like I know those songs because she would make us sing them. Again, no connection to slavery, no connection to our history. You know, it is kind of she, she was she like other teachers, just really wanted us, us to assimilate, <laughs> and she wanted she you know she um, kind of had to tame us. So that's almost kind of the way it felt like. That's the, almost the way it felt. But one of the things we also think about is just the black boys in those classrooms and how um, much more harshly they were judged by mostly these white women teachers, you know, so I I saw this, I feel that's my kind of direct experience with them, how they were treated differently and were not given support and, um, you know, how much um, they did not do as well academically, not because they didn't have ability, you know, but because... um, they felt they had no connection with these teachers. They didn't feel like these teachers necessarily cared about them or understood them. or And in some cases, probably already viewed them as like future criminals, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. future problems. So again, I like I said, I don't have that academic expertise in this topic, but I I lived this. I observed it you know, through my own life and seeing even the, um, what's happened to some of the men in my own family. Um, and the one thing I'll remember, and I'll, I'll close it out here. Um, you know, there was one... Um, uh, young uh, boy in my class who uh, you know just really struggled academically and um, you know just so he would always get a hard time and it would always be you know because in a classroom and you're embarrassing you know sometimes kids would feel embarrassed by the teachers by what they didn't know or what they couldn't do or what they couldn't accomplish But And I I talked to him on Facebook about this because his father had passed away. His father, I remember his father would come up to that school (laughs) and always have to be talking to those teachers. And I just, I always had the sense even as a child that, okay that it was a good thing that his father was there advocating for him, right? Mm -hmm. And being and interacting with those teachers and trying to make some demands, you know, because this is not even public school. We're paying for this. This is a private Mm -hmm. school. And again, this is not some elite, fancy New York private school. This is a a neighborhood church school. (laughs) So, you know, it's not not necessarily that we were getting um, kind of some sort of elite education. But, you know, um, I think that um, this idea of you know, parents and families still need to advocate for kids and need to be involved. And it's not about, you know, sort of blaming families for not doing enough, but um, it makes a difference. It makes a difference with kids' survival. And I, I, I told him, like, oh, you know, I remember that your father used to do that for you. And he really appreciated that because, and he talked about what a hard time he had, that always feeling mm-hmm. like, given the impression that he was not enough and wasn't good enough and wasn't smart enough and couldn't, couldn't be anything.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that from your personal background. Uh, I would say that to the public health practitioners or health educators who are listening, you know, investing in a child's third grade reading level is health, Mm. is public health. That's right. Absolutely. And we often don't see it that way. You know, we say, well, that's not public health. I'm not going to give my money and I'm not going to give my talent to it. It is public health. If we can raise all children up where they're hitting the state marks and requirements at third grade, because by grades K through 3, you learn how to read. In kindergarten through third grade, you learn how to read. Mm -hmm. By grade 4, you read by you learn by reading Mm -hmm. and if you don't know by grade four how to read it's going to be tough for you and this is where we see the the tremendous dropout so let's go to let's move up to talk about high school kids can i just one comment
1: on that just one comment on that because you know i'm i'm a professor in the department of oncology here at wayne state university i'm also one of the associate center directors for our carmanos cancer institute so cancer center and um, i know a few years ago there there uh There were data shared by the American Cancer Society uh, through, you know, at the time, Dr. Otis Brawley, um, who's very well known in cancer prevention and control circles, you Mm -hmm. know, was sharing this information that basically by some of their kind of large scale analyses, right, that, you know, if by increasing education, you could decrease cancer deaths, (laughs) literally by increasing education level, right? So that what you're saying is very powerful in terms of education as a social determinant and upstream determinant of health.
0: Yeah, very good. Let, let's talk about high school kids for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm reading these stats here, but this is from the National Center for Educational Statistics. Mm-hmm. They keep accurate views, accurate um, statistics on who graduates. And so they said, in 2021, black American kids and American Indian Alaskan natives mm-hmm. had the lowest high school graduation rates. Black American kids at 80%, that means 20% of them drop out did Uh not graduate. And American Indian and Alaska Natives are 74%, which means 26% of them dropped out. On the other end, Uh if we flip it, we have Asian and Pacific Islander kids who graduate at a rate of 93%. So we have a big 20-some percent difference there, if I did my math right. So what what do you think we see these differences in graduation rates in high school? And what can we do about it? I mean, I, I believe what you said earlier about letting the people of Jackson, Mississippi tell us <laughs> and they take the lead. Sometimes, you know, people need help in organizing and learning how to advocate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they ask for help, sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. But what can we do for these kids who are dropping out at a rate of, you know, 20%, 25%? percent
1: mm-hmm. So, given any, that. Any
0: opinion, ideas?
1: Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, the uh, again, I'm not, you know, my, my background's in clinical psychology, not education, but just kind of based on um, our conversation so far, you know, we're looking at differences in um, graduation rates and in completion rates by race, right? And can, so there's a question mm-hmm. to be asked about, again, how does institutional racism support this, right? What is happening systemically? In these schools, and even maybe beyond the schools, we can talk about how teachers are trained. Right? Are they trained in kind of with any kind of multicultural competence? Exactly. Right. right. But what is happening that is impacting? Because it's not the kids' fault. <laughs> I'm not. That, I don't blame the children. Right. Um, it that, that that's not where the blame lies in terms of again not working hard enough. Now there may be um, experiences in school systems and other you know um, experiences outside of school and such in different traumas that certainly can affect you know, an individual kid's motivation, <laughs> or um, and, or and perhaps, you know, they never learn study skills, there are certain kinds of um, academic practices or academic um, strategies that maybe they never learned and that's playing out on an individual level in terms of how that their individual school performance. But again, I think the questions, we have to kind of look at a bigger picture, you know, um, because if in fact, you know, black kids are not graduating at the same rate as white kids, then you know the, the the question should be then how can we support those children? What is happening that you know because clearly they're not getting the support they need to complete you know the academic program, right? So I think that's one um, part, that's one uh, area to target, um, but also thinking about you know what what kind of factors might be influencing that child's. Um, uh, their experience in the classroom, their comfort in the classroom, right? Their interact. What's going on with the interaction with the other students? You know, what's going on with the way that um, with their interactions with teachers? You know, what is the, what is that communication like? You know, um, and when I said, looking beyond the school system, again, that you know, communication with uh, students, that's all, you know, driven by the teacher. How are they being trained to kind of work with diverse student populations? So again, I would, my my uh, my take is always to kind of look at the the, the system, look kind of. You know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. So what are the factors that are guiding um, differences in performance?
0: Yeah, and you can probably tell where I'm going with this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we started with elementary kids. We're moving up to high school. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to move to where you and I work. Mm -hmm. Um, We work at universities. The University of Toledo is a public Mm -hmm. university. Mm -hmm. About 20,000 students. I don't know the the size of Wayne State. How many students are at Wayne State?
1: You know, I, I'm I'm embarrassed. I don't know off the top of my head. It's probably it's probably, probably somewhat smaller, but it is again an, an urban public university. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we we take anybody at UT. Um, we have an admitted problem with keeping kids enrolled, especially black kids. Mm-hmm. Black males in particular are the highest mm-hmm. group that drop out of classes. Um, I've had. A doctoral student, not too many years ago, who's now at St. Louis University. No, oh. she was interested in finding someone. She's a black female. She wanted to get married, and she couldn't find anybody, and she was frustrated by it. And she came to me and said, "Dr. Jordan, I can't find anybody. I can't find anybody that's my equal. Everyone that wants to date me, you know, doesn't have a master's degree. Or is not working on a doctoral degree." And you know, thankfully, she found someone. His mm-hmm. name is Bernard. If they ever hear this, mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> so. But, you know, we have a problem at the university level that we work. Number one, I've been affiliated with this department now as a student, as a doctoral, as a professor for mm-hmm. about 27 years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I can only remember, as I think back, maybe one black male faculty member. And mm. maybe in terms of healthcare providers, and we, we train nurses here. We have pre-med. We have public health pre-med. Maybe two black males in 22 years that have graduated. Um, so what's going on, Haley? Why why do we have these problems? And maybe you see the same thing at Wayne State. I don't know, but I certainly see it here at the University of Cleveland. Why, why so few, in your opinion?
1: So, you know, certainly I... Um... There are similar issues at Wayne State University, and I don't want to sort of only pick on, you know, University of Toledo or Wayne State University because these are problems that are widespread Mm -hmm. across many institutions and many universities and colleges. So I will tell you certainly at the faculty level, you know, um, because I'm hopefully, you know, I know many institutions are kind of thinking about so a couple of things. So let's just even take faculty, and then we can think about also then pipelines. But how are we hiring people? How are we going about the recruitment process? How are we going about the hiring process? Mm -hmm. And we have some... um, In the past few years, it is mandated now at our university when you are on a search committee, you need to go to some... um, uh, implicit bias training. <laughs> you need to kind of go get, go through training to kind of to mm-hmm. to that focuses or highlights or, or or promotes awareness of the way that we unconsciously how we unco- the uh, the way we unconsciously judge people, <laughs> right? And 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 there's a lot I think in the literature about this. We start, even with you know hiring more women faculty. <laughs> you know, um, there's certain kinds of qualifications mm-hmm. that are viewed differently if they're held by men versus women. You know, and there can be similar things for. Um, for uh, faculty of color, you know, with uh, one specific area is that, you know, um, there are many faculty of color, not everybody, but for instance, there are many black faculty who, when, they, when to the extent they work with, People and populations the social sciences or in, you know, behavioral medicine. You know, they their focuses on communities of color. That's who. That's the focus on disparities and inequities. And sometimes the the approach to working with those communities um, is not valued. They're, they're, they're not um, thought to be as methodologically rigorous, or the or even the topic. You know, may not be viewed as uh, worthy of academic inquiry as maybe some other topics. So you know, you get judged in a lot of different ways. Um, through not only um, your race but also your, your interests, to the extent that 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 identity drives your interests, there can be bias there. Um, so I know that's something that's again happening here. That even at the process, uh, even at the level of hiring people, um, when we're doing our rec- uh, our searches and recruitment, we, we try to have an awareness of that. But you know, it also is difficult because you know, um, to the extent that some of our faculty may not have diverse. Colleagues, you know, and those colleagues may not have Mm -hmm. diverse students. Well, who are you drawing from in terms of that pipeline? You know, you're gonna, you, um, if you don't know or don't have, uh, if you don't have colleagues who are working with black students, Latinx students, you know, indigenous students who, you know, when they kind of finish their degrees and finish their postdoctoral fellowships can move on into these positions, you know, you're not going to have access to them. That's because that's the way it works often in academia, as you know. You know, you reach out to colleagues or you reach out to different organizations and you, you mm-hmm. know, you place your post your ads and, um, you know, you might make some calls to the folks, you know, hey, do you have anybody who you think is a good person who maybe you trained? Yeah. And, you know, it's a little club, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. in, in academ- academia, there are lots of little clubs, right, um, that can be quite exclusive and not inclusive at all. So that's another piece of it as well. We have to be very conscious of how are we going about these searches? We're, you know, where are we looking? Who are we talking to? Is You know, are our own um, uh, circles of colleagues wide enough are they diverse enough you know so i think that's part of it and then in terms of there's a whole retention issue that i'm very attentive to um here at wayne state you know because um and again this is not unlike other universities you know wayne state is not unique Mm -hmm. where you have you know young faculty of color who are coming in and they have a really tough time in their departments you know they really find they find it to be a very lonely unsupported experience. Mm-hmm. Again, where they feel like very much like outsiders. Um, I uh, know of a couple of cases and I've had my own experiences like this where, because I don't necessarily, I don't teach students in traditional classes, but um, I've had experiences with um, research associates, but I've had other black colleagues who do teach um, and having, you know, kind of really uh, having to deal with kind of really um, unfounded Negative evaluations from students, in a way that I don't think their white colleagues have to address, um, and don't have to confront, um, and then not getting support from their, their chair or who, from leadership when they kind of have to confront these types of issues, you know. Um, so that, that's a, again, those are small pieces of it, but hopefully provide a little bit of insight of just all these different point pain points, right, <laughs> where they can, where we might might need to change.
0: Yeah, they are pain points. And uh, I think for 20, 21 years here in this department, we've said, you know, we want to hire a black female professor. Mm -hmm. And in my years here, of 21 years, we probably sent four really good doctoral students, black female doctoral Mm -hmm. students away and didn't hire them. You know, one went to Western Kentucky, one went to East Carolina. I mean, it's interesting to me that maybe we should change the search process, as you said. Mm -hmm. And and the University of Toledo has always said, well, you have to go away for at least five or six years and kind of sow your wild oats, if you will, and then come back. We may talk to you. Well, maybe we shouldn't say that. Maybe we, we just know that this is a really good student and the student's been here for four years. Why can't we hire her? So I think that's changing. I think I think there's a process underway to maybe retain some of those mm-hmm. students and to change the search process and to change the pipeline process. So,
1: yeah, it has to be very see. intentional. It Has to be very yeah. intentional. I, I will say here at you know Wayne State, you know, it's been very um, encouraging to see certain programs emerge. Like so, um, and I actually have a, uh, a young African American woman working with me now coming through what we call a pathway to faculty program. And it's about getting diverse postdoctoral fellows. And, um, you know, um, if she completes, and I have no doubt she will, com- she meets certain milestones and completes a successful postdoctoral year. She's done two years of postdoc already. She's going to do a third one with me. And she's going to be guaranteed a tenure-track faculty line. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we have to be creative in the approaches that we take to and make it attractive for people to stay because the other thing is that, you know, yes, you want to bring in a female faculty member Does she have other black colleagues, you know, there are, there are people in the university who, you know, can be there um, as mentors and um, be part of her mentoring group or be part of her support system.
0: That's right. Yeah. Let's, let's now move up to medical school. Okay. So mm-hmm. I, we have a medical school here at U Toledo. You have a medical school mm-hmm. there at Wayne state Uh, residents, you have your backgrounds in oncology. Um, Again, according to an article in the Journal American Medical Association, JAMA, which is a very famous journal, Mm -hmm. is I think published in 2019. This looked at 15 years worth of medical school admissions from 2002 Mm -hmm. to 2017. 15 years worth of medical school admissions. And when they looked at how many students of color were admitted to medical school? They found that students of color were severely, severely underrepresented. Why do you think that is and what can we do about it from a grassroots perspective? Do we, what, what, How can we get more kids of color into medical school?
1: Yeah, medical school is a really um, interesting area. I had a brief experience when I worked at, um, before coming to Detroit in 2011, I worked in New York, which is my hometown, and uh, at a couple of institutions, and one, um, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, now it's the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, but uh, for a brief time I was on um, their um, medical school admissions committee, Mm -hmm. And, um, and interestingly, I was on a subcommittee, I was on a subcommittee specifically reviewing underrepresented minoritized students, which actually, I kind, I I think there's value in that, and I don't know if that's still, you know, that's still a, um, uh, a practice there. I don't know how typically it is a practice at other institutions, but it was an effort to really get a, um, a more diverse uh, set of reviewers and interviewers to the table to really understand kind of the this candidate, this medical school candidate, kind of more fully in terms of all their interests, all their um, uh, all their experiences and what that really brings to the table and how they really could um, impact medicine, you know, so, uh, and medical, yeah, and and um, I thought, I, I think there's value in that, but I think that, um, and it also made me realize that I learned that if you want to go to medical school, that's a decision you need to make A while in advance, (laughs) you need to you you need to make that decision years in advance. That's what those experiences and what I working here in a medical school. um, That's what I understand now that I didn't understand necessarily earlier. My you know, I'm in a different career track, but and um, it really has to start um, certainly by high school, even as early as high school. If that is something you desire to go to be a medical doctor to be a physician, then. you need to start um, planning accordingly in terms of the classes that you take, in terms of giving yourself time to kind of take the classes you need and to be able to do well in those classes. It takes organization and it also takes a lot of support. Even, even within that group of underrepresented, um, quote, you know, the underrepresented committee, you know, looking at black students, black candidates, black Latinx candidates. They were still a lot of those folks. Their parents were doctors. <laughs> yeah, their, doc- their mm-hmm. doctors were already yep. physicians. It's just interesting, not all, but it was, I was surprised, even you know that, yeah. And, and and frankly, and with a lot of medical students, you know, they have someone in their family, a parent or somebody else mm-hmm. who is already helping them, you know, along the way and helping them make the right choices at different points in their um, academic career. So a part of it has to do with. Um, you know, um, gauging that interest and kind of stoking that interest and at least having, you know, um, children ask themselves those questions at early ages. And it's tough because, you know, what is, you know, you're 15, 16, <laughs> you know, you might not be, you know, it's a hard question to answer. And it's not that you can't do it in a non-traditional age either, you know, but just understand that it's going to take time, you know, to kind of, um, to, uh, you know, take all the courses and they had get all the experiences um, that you need to be a, a strong candidate, a competitive candidate from for medical school. So, I think pipeline programs. Are, I know a, a lot of medical schools spend a lot of time on that and trying to, you know, um, uh, make sure that they start at an early phase, at least by high school. Sometimes even earlier. I think that you know, I, I think that is um, really important in kind of thinking about. Um, uh, you know, in, in terms of addressing some of those issues. But then, you know, part of it is also the interest, right? And do, can people see themselves as physicians? You know, do they have those role models? And I don't want to kind I think sometimes we talk about role models in very simplistic, reductive ways, like just because, you know, it's more than just having those examples, those real world examples, but they're important nonetheless. You know, mm-hmm. kind of that's, you know, social modeling. You know, and understanding that maybe somebody who's like you, who looks like you, who maybe came from a similar background, you know, if they can do this, you know, and so you can now you have, um, you know, you, you you can perhaps envision yourself. Doing some similar things, so I think those are important as well, and um, exposure to that is really important and I also think it's really important just along these lines that I feel like I'm not enough um, you know children of color and certainly like I said, I come from an immigrant black immigrant family you know a lot of immigrants you know parents they just want you to be you know doctors and lawyers and when they say doctors, they mean physicians. but you know are we really exposing you know, young people to the wide range of health professions that exist at younger ages. You know, like um, I had some uh, really nice interaction today with the head of our genetic counseling program, right? Genetic counseling, that's a huge need. You probably know for genetic counselors. That is a, a field where you will, can, will always work. They were able to place all of their students, you know, and you will always have a, a well-paying job and have a fulfilling job in healthcare. You know, but how many kids know about, you know, what it means to be to get a master's in genetic counseling or to get, you know, um, I guess maybe more, maybe perhaps now, especially with the pandemic, understand what, is it, what does it mean to work in public health? You know, they're just, what, you can be a biostatistician. There's so many different careers you can have in this space as well. So I think, I, and I don't want to take away, we need physicians. Physicians are at the front line of healthcare, And if we want to address racism in healthcare, they need to be a part of that. That, that struggle they need to be a part of that um, that effort and we need to have a, we need much more diversity in that effort. but it's just an, an, an additional thought like there, there are a lot of places where we can address equity in healthcare in addition to being a medical doctor or providing direct care. I'm sorry, I feel like I my I, I, I feel think... like I'm hoping my answer is not too rambly <laughs>
0: so, <good laughs> no <thing. laughs> no, not at all. I agree with the with the exposure to other health professions though I mean, uh, for eight, eight or nine years, I was the lead evaluator mm. for a Minority Health Commission here in Lucas County. Yeah. And I kept harping. I felt like I was harping or preaching like mm-hmm. we need a youth health commission. We need a minority health commission <sighs> among minority youth to expose them to all the different careers that they could. The problem that I saw, though, is at least here in Toledo. I don't know how it is in Detroit, but the kids were attending schools that did not give them... Those kind of experiences that you yeah. talk about. They didn't offer those kind of preparatory college prep classes that prepared them. They didn't get very good counseling, you know, that other kids at, say, a rich Ottawa Hills right down the street, which is all white mostly, mm-hmm. they get. So, what do we do about it? You have to go outside the school system and you have to attract kids to youth commissions or pipeline programs that are not part of the schools because the schools just aren't going to do it. Yeah. It's placism, again, driven by racism. Racism mm-hmm. is the overall umbrella term. I want to go now to faculty members of medical schools. You mentioned being able to see people like you, mm-hmm. hear people like you. I had a direct encounter with this. Um, Kelvin Freeman, if you're watching or listening, you know, you're know you going to be famous because I'm going to mention you here. Yeah. So. Kelvin Freeman is a black American guy. He's from um, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. He's up in Detroit. Mm. He works for the health department now. Okay. And he was team teaching with me. He, I was mentoring him about de- and teaching death and dying, and he started his own class. And mm. I think a couple of years ago he called me and said, hey, I got to go to the doctors or dentists, whatever. Can you fill in for me? So I said, yeah, I can fill in for you. This is a funny story. So I walk in the class and there are four or five black American men that gravitated to Kelvin section because Kelvin himself was black. And they, they saw someone that looked like them, talked like them. They could see themselves doing that perhaps. And they said to me, "He said, where's Kelvin? And <laughs> I said, well, um, you're kind of stuck with me. I'm Dr. Tim Jordan. You know, I've taught Kelvin everything he knows about death. And death. Oh, man. We're stuck with you. They were so disappointed that this white guy was teaching their right. class. And I thought, you know, that really points out the fact that here at U Toledo, we take everybody, we include many black Americans, Latinx Americans, but yet we look around the faculty and we don't see people that look like them. And that's true of the medical student faculty as well, medical school faculty. According to statistics, only 36 percent of faculty at American medical schools were black american this was a study published in 2021 in the new england journal of medicine 3.6% yeah. are black american only 2.2% were native american or alaskan mm-hmm. even in smaller just a minuscule proportion so why do you think that happens? Does it go all the way down to third grade le- reading level again? We just aren't having the right pipeline. Why do you, what can we do about it?
1: Uh, I, I just, well, I want to just even jump back to that story in the, cl- you know, you talked about in that particular classroom when you were, we were substituting for Calvin, right? Yeah. I mean, because it just, um, yep. what my first reaction was just that, oh, you know, those young men felt safe with him, right? And I just want to kind of just, safe, I, yeah. yeah, you know, I think, and, that's important, right? because it and I think it um at different points throughout you know one's academic career, your educational journey, that can make a lot of difference, right? Because I, I, and even now, even I'm you know, how many years into this professional career, I'm a full tenured professor, <laughs> you know you know done you know lots of different things. and even still, now, for me, and I'm just I'm just gonna be very vulnerable and share here, that idea of safety is incredibly important. Like, do I feel safe in terms of feeling accepted by my colleagues, you know, um, feeling that um, I'm um, valued by my colleagues, um, uh, that my ideas will be heard um, uh, with uh, kind of open mind, open ears, um, and that um, I'm not going to be judged. I'll be judged by the the quality of kind of my contributions versus, you know, the color of my skin, you know, and and, um, feeling like at least somebody is able to disentangle that, right? Because I think that's part of what's, you know, kind of racism today, like this idea of disentangling kind of like one's race from their kind of culture and their ideas and what they're sharing and and having a reaction to all of that together. But, um, you know, can somebody... do, do I feel like somebody can um, judge my ideas and not have my race be a part of that? That's what I mean by disentangling it and trusting that they mm-hmm. can do that. So, and, and, um, and that's for me, like I said. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, moderately secure person, <laughs> certainly professionally in what I'm doing now. But you know, and think about, but think about then what that's like for someone who's not as secure. You know, who's at a different stage of career or a different stage of education, and I, again, it's not. I, I know it's a very touchy-feely concept, maybe. And I'm a clinical psychologist, so I'm op- I'm open to that kind of, um, you know, talking about that kind of thing. But I think it's it's incredibly important that idea of feeling, um, that um, not o- not only feeling safe. And that you're going to be judged for, you know, not uh, more presumed incompetent, you know, because of your, because of your um, race or the way you look, but also knowing that people have belief in your intelligence. People kind of believe that you have something to offer, something meaningful to offer, which I think is a big thing in academia too, because we, this is a, um, a world of ideas. Right. And um, not all ideas are valued similarly Be based on your background. Right. You know, because, you know, in certain fields, we have certain theories and models and things that, you know, we know can get published and that are generally thought of as important areas to study but if you're somebody else who maybe comes from a different perspective and you want to kind of look at something different you know you want to look at maybe spirituality and health or you want to look at kind of like you know black woman a black uh, superwoman schema you know john henryism you know look at that in relation to health maybe people like oh you know you have this majority that doesn't maybe is not familiar with those terms or familiar with those ideas and might then um devalue them in some way and uh Yeah, and then you don't feel safe. And then you don't want to talk. You don't want to participate. You don't want to be involved. And then you could leave and go to another institution that will.
0: (laughs) Or you do feel safe. So maybe the problem is, since we have so few faculty members of color, Mm -hmm. that waters itself down or goes down the waterfall Mm -hmm. and flows down to the number of students that come there because they don't feel safe. They look Mm -hmm. around and there's no one like them. That's right. Right.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, 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 um, am willing to say, you know, that that's likely part of the experience. Yeah.
0: So, what do we do about it, though? What can, from a grassroots perspective, um, you know, how can we change the proportion of medical school faculty members who are people of color, like yourself? Do we? So. Does that start with recruitment again? Do we change admission policies? How, how do we do that?
1: I think all of those things. Well, it's a complex problem, so it's going to be a complex solution, right, with many different, you know, pieces to that puzzle. You know, but honestly, one of the first things I think about are, you know, I kind of think um, about who's already there at those institutions, right? You know, and I know that this, you know, we have a lot of conversations about allies and about kind of accomplices and that sort of thing. But I think that's important. You know, how are you signaling you, because the thing is, these institutions are what they are, right? And they're not representative. They're not necessarily inclusive. So, but how do we then, you know, how do people, how do people in these institutions shift their behavior to kind of, again, signal that this can be a safe place and this is a place that is open to change. You know, so I think it's about behavior. I think then that kind of behavior has to be supported. I think it has to be driven by leadership. So it then comes at a higher level that, hey, this is something we value. It has to be it has to be accompanied by training, support, conversations, dialogues, listening sessions, whatever it takes. So that becomes a natural part of our conversation because it's still something that I don't feel like, at least in my observation, that many people are comfortable, many of our colleagues in academia are comfortable talking about. Right and openly, and kind of letting themselves, you know, be vulnerable and talk about it, you know, and maybe not getting all the language and and jargon right, but being able to just handle it and take it when they're wrong and take correction and kind of move on. So I think those kinds of things are really that, that has to be at least one starting place. Like you know, um, how do how you know. How are we supporting individuals and in kind of making these workplaces and these academic environments more inclusive? And then we have to look at our policies. Like, again, what kind of programs are we putting in so that, again, if we're bringing in more black faculty or more faculty of color, they're not coming in by themselves. You know, that's something that's happening here at Wayne State. We're bringing, making sure that's not just one or two people. We're bringing in a cohort of people who now can rely on each other. And they have, you know, they have a, um, again, it's there's a built-in support system. We're talking about for their mentors, training their mentors. How do you work? with um these um these trainees or these junior faculty in ways that doesn't you know kind of emphasize um the word i used before was um uh, assimilation right and that kind of you know and then how do we make sure that we're open to different ideas and new thinking right um so again i'll, I'll leave it at that and let you jump in but that that's i, like, I think a key part I, of it
0: i think you're ahead of us up at wayne state you're ahead <laughs> of you toledo and that and like we don't bring in cohorts of students to support one another. I think that's a great idea.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I really think that's a yeah. great idea. I will also tell you well, with this- Well, if you're- mm-hmm. Oh, ahead. sorry.
1: No, no, no. And the other thing with, um, you know, because I told you I have this um, postdoctoral fellow who's in this- um, uh, that path, pathway to faculty program, in addition to being a part of that kind of cohort, we also, um, and I will say, the, um, one of the deans, uh, I'll shout out Dean Amanda Brian Friedrich here at Wayne State University, she's the dean of our graduate school, she's an African-American woman who's helping to, be. she's one of the architects of this. So um, we have, they have a brain trust, and it's, a, it's this diverse group of, um, of mentors um who all have a very actually very specific role sometimes it's a challenger role there's a peer mentor there's a research mentor and everybody has a role to support this person's success so i just wanted to mention that's that too that's very good
0: well you're ahead of us we we don't do those things quite <laughs> yet so uh, if you're just tuning in we're we're in the last home stretch here the last couple of minutes of our podcast episode number 4 this is dr haley thompson from Wayne State University. And Haley, I'm going to ask you the, the last question mm-hmm. um, on my list. We've, we've talked a lot. Of, we started at third graders <laughs> and we've gone all the way up to medical school faculty. But I want to talk for a minute about graduate medical education. That's the world that I come from prior to coming here. And I helped oversee two residency programs a family practice residency program, mm-hmm. I helped oversee a transitional residency program that was a one-year program, mostly internal medicine residents. And I just don't remember seeing, again, maybe one, maybe two black American graduate, well, it was residents, really, it was graduate medical education, so it was residents. So what can we do about creating more opportunities, in your opinion, for residents of color?
1: Yeah, so, you know, one of the, you know, this conversation we haven't kind of said kind of the uh the the three words that are kind of really uh uh popular right now, right, which is DEI, right, diversity, equity, e- e- equity and inclusion. Um and it's coming to mind because um you know, it's very relevant to this question you're asking me now, how do we bring in and the conversation we've been having? How do we bring in more um faculty and physicians into our institutions. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, like I mentioned, I work at a cancer center and we, um, the, uh, we're fund, we we get funding from the National Cancer Institute. It's called a Cancer Center Support Grant because um, we're a comprehensive cancer center, one of 53 in the whole country. So this is kind of like, if you will, an elite group, if you will, of cancer centers. Mm-hmm. And um, there are certain... Things that, you know, a cancer center needs to have in terms of research programs, uh, community outreach and engagement, that's my role. They have a new requirement. They, now, every cancer center has to have a plan to enhance diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and most centers now are hiring, now are, are, are appointing a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for that purpose, to diversify that workforce. However, that's never... The, 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 the only way that's going to be successful... Is honestly, if the institution um, needs to put dollars <laughs> behind those That's kind right. of initiatives, right to um, again do the internal education training, um, build the supports that um, we would need to kind of you know, make sure that people are successful here when they come here, um, and also to kind of do that outreach, to do that networking, to um, to um, attract uh, candidates, diverse candidates. Um, so I think um, they need to put in dollars, and the person who, the people who are leading those initiatives need to have authority they need to have real decision making authority they need to be told like okay you know because um, this can be a very complicated thing in universities and hospitals you know you know giving you know they um power to uh, power to hire right or a real voice in um um you know uh, creating positions or being a part of posting those positions setting the guidelines for the positions being a part of the search committees training those search committees and um you know, because I think that it doesn't take a whole lot of analysis to understand the need. I mean, there's so few of us in these different institutions, you know, there's just, the, the charge is evident, right? We need to kind of bring in more folks in different ways and different um, roles. But, um, you know... Um, There are a lot of things that complicate that in terms of our institutional budgets, basically to hire people. And then when we're talking about academia often, it's not just about hiring these people and giving these people salary. If they're doing research, you know, they need startup funds, they need a lab, they need, you know, again, certain resources need to be put in place. So I think that the, um, um, and I I guess I maybe have some concerns sometimes about kind of... um, I know that the folks who are leading these DI initiatives have great ideas and make recommendations, and it's part of its. What is the will of the institution to um, to support those recommendations and make them a reality? And again, it really comes down to a lot of it. Just take, it, it, part of it is an inv- there's needs to be an investment of dollars.
0: Yeah, I think of the state of Ohio as an example. I think we were the first state to have a minority health commission in every mm-hmm. major city. And I remember chairing a dissertation recently of a professor who's now at the University of Kentucky. And he talked to the chair, the director of the Minority Health Commission office in every state, all 50 Mm -hmm. states plus the uh, Washington, D.C. area, District of Columbia. And we came away with the feeling that almost that it was like dressing, window dressing, like they weren't Mm -hmm. given enough money to do anything. Mm -hmm. And yet... It's like patting them on the head. Well, we're going we're gonna to let you have a little office and maybe one staff member, but there was no real funding behind the, the initiative. And I agree with you. I think if these people are going to be successful in combating racism and placism, that we have to give them money. We have to mm-hmm. give them authority. We have to give them power mm-hmm. to do things. So I hope this discussion, this 53-minute, 54-minute yeah. discussion was helpful to our listeners. Um, We've talked a lot about kids, but I think it starts down at kids and moves Mm -hmm. its way up. And I think the reason we see so few physicians in medical schools, we see so few faculty members of color, starts with where you're living, institutional racism, generational poverty, all those things. It's multifactorial, as you've said. And so I hope this Mm -hmm. has been a really good discussion. I've learned a lot. And I thank you for being here, Dr. Haley Thompson. Thank you very much. Last word goes to you. Anything that you'd like to say?
1: Just thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a great discussion.
0: Well, and I thank hope people you so get something much. out of it. <laughs> I appreciate you being here, Dr. Haley Thompson from Wayne State University. And uh, take a listen. Let us know what you think. We'll see you next month. Take care, everybody. The 1795 Group is very happy to tell you about Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble podcast, produced and distributed by Lemonata Media. You know, every day it seems like the world is on the brink of a crisis. There are just so many serious issues. But you can join Andy Slavitt and various experts on his podcast to make sense of it all. Andy's been called the outsider's insider for a reason. I personally believe he knows everyone. As a former White House advisor, author, crisis response leader, Andy simply finds the right helpers to get us moving forward together, smarter and calmer. Get in the bubble today. In the Bubble podcast is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.